by way of introduction, but while I'm doing that, why don't you go ahead and take your Bibles out and be turning to Romans chapter 11. This morning we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. While you're turning there, let me let you know how thankful I am and my family is for the way that you have loved us, thought for us, cared for us just in the last 168 hours since we have been residents of the greater Cape Girardeau area. Uh, we, we have felt in, incredibly blessed. Uh, innumerable text messages, Facebook messages, telephone calls, visits to our house, meals being brought to us, men descending upon my driveway to carry heavy things out of a truck. I appreciate all of those things, and so do my family. Thank you for loving my little ones, for asking about Caden and how his leg is, and encouraging my wife, you ladies, with, uh, with sweet emails and Facebook messages. When you love my family well, you love me well. Uh, and I certainly appreciate that. And I, I wanted to let you know that from the depths of our heart, we appreciate that. Thank you so much. I also want to say this, if you happen to be uh, around the chapel facilities on any given afternoon, uh, please take a stroll down the, the pastoral hallway there. If I've got my door open, pop your head in, introduce yourself. Would love to continue putting names with faces. Thank you uh, for those of you who have snagged me on an aisle of Walmart and said, hey, Eric, I know you don't know me, but I know you, and, and introduced yourself to me. And uh, that's such an encouragement I realize as we're out and about in the community that, that many of you know who we are as you see us, but we don't necessarily know who you are yet or haven't been able to have the privilege of putting a name with a face. And so please snag me if you see me on the peanut butter aisle at Walmart uh, or in a furniture store like yesterday. We, we certainly appreciate that and want to continue to get to know all of you in the days, weeks, months, and years uh, to come. But it's a great honor and a great privilege for uh, me to be here with you and ongoing to be able to open God's Word. It's also very humbling for me to realize that to whom much is entrusted, uh, much will be asked of, and, uh, and so I don't take this, this lightly. And so with that being said, let me pray and ask God to bless our time together in His Word this morning. Pray with me, would you? Father, we thank you so much for the privilege it is to meet together corporately this morning and to open and study your word. We recognize and are keenly aware of the fact that there are so many redeemed believers around the face of this planet who are not afforded the same privilege this morning. And so, God, we turn our attention to your word. We long to know you. Uh, God, we, we want to be changed by you. Just like Paul said, that beholding you in your glory, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. God, we pray that you would help us to do that. We confess that we're weak and frail. We're completely dependent. We're in need of you. We're in need of your Holy Spirit to even illuminate the word that sits on our laps this morning, to help us understand it, uh, Lord, and to help us apply it. And so in our weakness and in our frailty, we ask that you would meet us here uh, and do what only you can. We love you. Thank you for what you've done for us in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I understand one thing this morning pretty well, and that's that you probably don't use the word inestimable in your daily vocabulary. And that's okay, because I don't either. But when we consider the nature, the character, and the attributes of God, all we have are finite words to try to accurately describe an infinite, holy God. 
You see, we have a hard time even thinking in categories that are outside of our range of experience or sensations. And so we, we describe God with words like this, incalculable, incomparable, indescribable, inexpressible, inexhaustible, unfathomable, beyond all comparison, immeasurable, overwhelming, and awesome. Matter of fact, let me encourage you to this, and I feel at this often, but that word awesome, awe. Awe is reserved for God and God alone. We should not be in awe of anything else. Okay? We ought to be careful how we use the word awesome when we toss it out. Hey, that was awesome. Uh, God alone is awesome. He is greatly awesome. But we use finite human words to try to grasp at something of describing an infinite God. It's, it's kind of like this picture of an iceberg right here. When, when we try to describe God, all we're doing is scratching at the surface of that iceberg when there is an unfathomable, infinite God behind that. And even that illustration breaks down so quickly because that iceberg has an end. God has no end. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Even, even the loftiest, the grandest words don't do justice to describing our infinite God. We're going to turn our attention this morning to the book of Romans. I love the book of Romans. Uh, the book of Romans is the greatest theological treatise in the entire New Testament, perhaps even in the entire Bible. In Romans chapter 1 through 11, what Paul is doing is he is systematically recounting God's redemptive plan. What you have in those first 11 chapters, this is by way of super broad overview, super broad explanation, but first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul is systematically recounting God's wonderful, glorious, redemptive plan, namely that he would save guilty sinners through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, his shed blood on Calvary's cross for us. The wisdom of God in the crucifixion of God's son. And then what you have in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, is Paul moves almost seamlessly from theology into doxology from great truths about who God is and what He's done into song of praise and adoration. That's what we see taking place in the text that is before us this morning. Paul slips seamlessly from theology to doxology. So wonderful is God's redemptive plan that having voiced it, God can now scarcely, or Paul rather, can now scarcely contain himself, and so he breaks into spontaneous praise. We'll see this again. Beginning January 31st, we'll begin about a year-long exposition of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And what we'll see is Paul taking the first two and a little bit beyond chapters uh, and, and laying down a theological framework, a theological foundation. And then he breaks into spontaneous praise in chapter 2. And he says, now to, to him, who is able to do all abundantly more than we've asked or imagined, you see, Paul breaks into spontaneous praise again there. And so hopefully that'll whet your appetite a little bit uh, for the coming weeks as we begin to study the book of Ephesians. But uh, that's what we see taking place in our text this morning. Eleven chapters of great foundational theology, and here is a song of praise. Paul can scarcely contain himself. And so let's look at that song of praise this morning together. I want to encourage you, if you can, if you are able this morning, why don't you stand with me in reverence for God's Word? 
Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens the following words. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. The first thing I want to draw your attention to this morning, if you are taking notes, is this. God's riches are without end. God's riches, Yahweh's riches, are without end. Look back at just the first little phrase there. Oh, the depth of the riches. God's riches are without end. Let's take just a moment and look at that word depth, though, for a minute. Paul uses the Greek word bathos. It's translated deep or depth in your Bible there in verse 33. It has the idea of deep waters. You see, immediately in Paul's doxology, we're reminded, though we sometimes forget in our frailty, that we're dealing with a God that is entirely other than us with a God that is entirely different than us, with a God that is entirely higher than us. God is vast. He's inexhaustible. He's immeasurable. He's incalculable. He's inestimable. He's unfathomable. There is in God an infinite profundity or depth, an infinite depth. Our God is by nature incomprehensible, at least in totality, to our finite minds. John Wesley once said this, I don't agree with everything he said, but this is sure spot on. He said this, he said, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man and I will show you a man who can comprehend the triune Godhead. We should recognize that not only are our minds incapable of exhaustively, uh, exhaustively knowing and understanding God, but our language is also incapable of adequately describing him. Now, having said that, it's, it's important to note this. The doctrine of God's incomprehensibility, okay? That, that is a, a doctrine, a set of truths, a foundational doctrine, the incomprehensibility of God. That doctrine does not preclude us to know anything about God. We can obviously know truth about God. God has revealed himself in creation, has he not? Romans 1, as a matter of fact, he's revealed himself so much in creation that all men are without excuse, Correct? He's revealed himself in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. When we look at the son, we see who? We see the Father. And he has revealed himself in his written word to us, in divine revelation. All 66 books from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, divinely inspired by one author, God himself. God is a self-revealing God. He has disclosed himself to us, at least in part even though he is incomprehensible, even though what we can know about him is, is but the tip of the iceberg, I think this, I think that we will spend eternity learning about an infinite God. I think when we step from this temporal world into eternity, we are not going to have full knowledge of an infinite God. I think we will spend all eternity learning of him, all without the encumbrance of sin. And to that, we ought to say, come, Lord Jesus, come, right? I look forward to that day, and I hope you do too. 
We'll spend eternity learning about the nature, the character, and the attributes of our infinite God. Jesus prayed this in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before his crucifixion. John 17, 3, talking to his disciples, Jesus says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I mean, what a privilege. We are the only part of God's creation that has the ability to rationally know him. Trees don't get that privilege. Rain doesn't get that privilege. Household pets don't get that privilege. But we, made in the image of God, are afforded that privilege. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you. Remember what Paul said in Philippians? He said, I want to know you in the power of your resurrection. We can know him, even though in him there is an infinite profundity, an infinite depth to him. Spurgeon once said this, one of my heroes, he said, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of the child of God. You ready? Is this. The name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he or she calls their father. It ought to be our daily delight to pursue knowing him, even though we can never plumb his depths. You know, that's what makes, that's part of what makes waking up and meeting with God so exciting every day, is that I can wake up and open God's word, and I can learn something today that I didn't know yesterday, and I could do that for eternity upon eternity upon eternity, and it would always be the same. There's an infinite depth to our God. When we consider the nature and character of God, we must humbly realize that we are in bathos. We are in deep waters. But oh, so good it is to be there, isn't it? Deep waters. I want to put depth into a little bit of perspective for you here. This is just a human illustration to kind of help your minds engage with depth a little bit. The Mariana Trench in the Western Pacific Ocean, it's the deepest recess on the face of the planet. Okay, all covered with water, way down deep, the deepest recess on the face of the planet. At its deepest known, and I quote deepest known point, it reaches a depth of over 36,000 feet below sea level. And that point is a location that's been named the Challenger Deep. Now, to put that in a little bit of context for you, if you were to submerge Mount Everest, which soars above sea level, some 29, almost 30,000 feet, if you were to submerge Mount Everest in the Mariana Trench, there, there in the Challenger Deep, Mount Everest would be covered by over 7,000, almost a mile and a half worth of water. Deep waters. And again, that illustration is imperfect. Because there's an end there. There's an end to that depth. There is not an end to the depth in our infinite God. Those depths can't compare to his depths. Job asks this question in Job chapter 11. He says, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Likewise, the psalmist in Psalm 92 writes this. He says, how great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts, they're very deep. You see, when we consider the nature and character of God, we are swimming in an infinitely deep 
ocean. Oh, the depths, Paul says. Paul wants to resize our view of God. He wants us to have a high view of God, a lofty view of God. He is not like us. We shouldn't talk to him like we talk to us. We shouldn't think of him like we think of us. We shouldn't relate to him like we relate to us. He is other than us. But yet he condescends himself to us in the person and work of his son that we might intimately know him. Oh, the depth, Paul says. The depth. Beyond our understanding. Well, the depth of what? The depth of the riches, Paul says. I want you to consider God's riches for a moment. Here's just a smattering of texts. Paul speaks of the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. Paul speaks of the riches of God's glory, the riches of God on all who call on him, the riches of God's inheritance, the riches of God's mercy, the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, the unsearchable riches of Christ. I mean, God's riches are deep. Listen to how Paul describes the riches of Christ's mercy, though. Oh, the depth. The depth of what, Paul? Oh, the depth of the riches. Now, how deep are the riches of God's mercy, you ask? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, a familiar text to many of you. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, how rich? Infinitely rich. Yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Rich. Riches in Christ. It's the riches of God's mercy and grace towards undeserving sinners just like you and me that Paul wants to fix our gaze on here in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. You see, salvation is a gift of God's riches, and it immensely enriches those to whom it is given. Albert Barnes, one of my favorite commentators, says this. He says, the pardon of sin. Just let that soak in for a moment. The pardon of sin. Praise be to God that there is a pardon for sin. And the atonement, the hope of heaven, the peace of the gospel, all bestowed on sinful, poor, wretched, dying men and women, All of those things reveal the great mercy and rich grace of God. It is beyond the power of our language to even express it, Barnes writes, so that all the Christian can do is follow the example of Paul and sit down in profound admiration at the rich grace of God. Our words can't even adequately describe it, so we just sit down in admiration at what he's done for us. Rich, poor, naked, condemned sinners apart from Christ Jesus. Remember Paul's words in Ephesians 2? If not, we'll be there shortly. Paul said, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, but God being what? Rich. Rich in what? Rich in mercy, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love for which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. Brothers and sisters, God's riches are without end. And what riches Paul is wanting to fix our gaze on this morning 
are the riches of our redemption in Christ Jesus. What his blood has accomplished for us. Oh, the depth, deep waters. The depth of what, Paul? The depth of God's riches. The riches of his mercy given to us. The second thing I want to draw your attention to on your notes this morning is this. God knows everything. We would agree, correct? But can I tell you what I know about you? Because no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man, and I'm more like you than I am dislike you. Here's what I know about you. I know that you and I will walk out those doors this afternoon, and we'll forget that truth. We'll forget that God knows everything. We will functionally deny that. This very afternoon, most if not all of us, God knows everything. Paul pens this phrase, and the wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depth of the riches. And then he adds, and the wisdom and knowledge of God. By the way, I think Paul has three, three points of admiration here, not two. Your Bible may use the word both instead of and. I think a little bit better translation of the original language here is and. In other words, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God, not both of. I think Paul has three, three subjects in view here. God's riches, number one, his wisdom, number two, and his knowledge, number three. Both confines it to two, just his wisdom and his knowledge. I think Paul is exalting three attributes here, riches, wisdom, and knowledge. So I think and is a little bit better translation than both. Having said that, I want us to consider first the knowledge of God, even though it's the second thing that appears there in Paul's phrase. Knowledge. What is knowledge? Well, volumes have been written on knowledge. Simply stated, knowledge is the awareness of truth. It's the, it's the awareness of fact, of truth. God not only knows all things, but he knows all things exhaustively. He's never learned anything. He has perfect knowledge of everything past present and future. No new idea has ever come to him. He's never discovered anything new. No one has ever enlightened him. He's perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, on earth, and in hell. Every, all his knowledge is infinitely deep. We could never plumb the depths of all that he knows. Listen to these words by Job. Job says, he, God, laid the foundations of the earth. Wow. Knowledge. He created the stars and he brings them out like an army, calling them all by name. What knowledge. I have trouble remembering my two children's names at times. God calls the stars out at night by name. And not only that, but they obey his voice. Power. Power. And knowledge. He tells the ocean, you can only come this far and no farther. Well, there's got to be a balance of that. The ocean comes too far and it wreaks havoc. God's knowledge. To get a little more personal, God said that he formed your inmost parts and he knit you together in your mother's womb. Knowledge. Knowledge. Jesus told his disciples and subsequently us that every hair on your head is numbered. What knowledge does he have? 
that every day of your life was written in his book. What knowledge. That he's acquainted with your every coming and going. What knowledge. That he knows every word before it, before it rolls off your tongue. What knowledge does he have? Infinite knowledge. Infinite knowledge. A.W. Tozer, I so appreciate uh, a lot of his writing, uh, gave an excellent treatment to the knowledge of God in his concise book, The Knowledge of the Holy. If you don't have a copy of this short book, I would encourage you to acquire a copy of it. Relatively short, just the way I like them, like that, can, can be read in just a few sittings. Uh, grab you a copy of Tozer's work, The Knowledge of the Holy. Chapter 11, there's about a six-page treatment. Though it's not exhaustive, it's very comprehensive of the knowledge of God. Listen to what Tozer writes about the knowledge of God here. He says, Could he, God, at any time or in any manner receive into his mind knowledge which he did not already possess and did not possess from all eternity, then he would be imperfect and less than himself. To think of a God who must sit at the feet of a teacher, even if that teacher were an archangel or a seraph, is to think of someone other than the most high God, maker of heaven and of earth. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones, all dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth, all motion, Space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. And because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but he knows all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He's never surprised. He's never amazed. He never wonders about anything. And never, except when he is drawing men and women out for their own good, does he ever seek information or ask questions. But we will walk out and forget that this afternoon. We'll walk out and forget that God knows everything. He knows everything. Let me give you three responses. These are freebies. These are on your outline if you're taking notes. Let me give you three responses that that ought to elicit in the heart of every believer, God's infinite wisdom, knowledge rather. Number one, it, it ought to bring us to a place of supreme humility. God knows all things, and that should be very humbling to me because that means that I don't. But it should also be very comforting to us as believers. And likewise, it should be very encouraging. Humbling, remember the psalmist wrote, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. It's too high. Humbling, comforting, and encouraging. But what does the knowledge of God have to do with an unbeliever? How does the knowledge of God apply to an unbeliever? Well, I'll say this. Just as encouraging and comforting as it is to a believer, it is equally as terrifying to an unbeliever. God knows all things. Infinite knowledge. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, let me remind you 
And let me do it humbly, because save the grace of God, I am in the exact same spot. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, let me remind you that you've sinned and that you've sinned before the face of a holy God. And not only have you sinned, but you've sinned knowingly, you've sinned willfully, you've sinned brazenly, and you've sinned repeatedly before the face of an infinite God. The writer of Hebrews gives us some sobering application of God's knowledge for an unbeliever when he pens these words in Hebrews chapter 4. He says, And no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are laid naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows all things, including our sin. And so the question is, how do you suppose you'll escape his knowledge? How do you suppose you'll evade his righteous requirements? Not one sin is forgotten, not one transgression is swept under the rug, and not one rebel moment goes unnoticed. The psalmist says this in Psalm 130. This is perhaps one of my favorite verses in God's Word. But he asked this question in Psalm 130, verse 3. He says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? And you know what? There's no answer to that question. You know why? Because the answer to that question is emphatically implied no one could stand. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Answer, no one could stand. We're all decimated. We're all condemned. We're all undone. We're all unclean. We're all unrighteous. We all miss the mark. No one could stand. I was thinking about this in my study this week. Jesus repeats this text in the Gospels, but it appears in Revelation chapter 6, speaking about the consummation of all things. Okay, so speaking about future events here in Revelation chapter 6. says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Number, number one, nothing can hide us from the face of him. Number two, if that could take place, it would be better. It would be better that the mountains fall on us than to be exposed to the unmitigated fury of the wrath of a holy God. But nothing escapes his view. There is no hiding. God's infinite knowledge penetrates the depths of our hearts. But there's great news. You see, Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Answers emphatically implied, no one. But do you know what Psalm 130, verse 4 says? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. No one could stand, but, by the way, I love that three-letter word. It appears in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be there shortly. Though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. Here's that little but word again. But you, but with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. William Cooper penned it this way. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. 
praise the Lord that in the riches of his knowledge, he has sent his son to hang on Calvary's cross and shed his blood for the remission of sin for all who would believe. For all who would believe. God not only has a depth of knowledge, but he also has a depth of wisdom. You see, if knowledge is the awareness of truth, then wisdom is the application of truth. In other words, not only does God know, but he knows what to do with what he knows. Boy, it would be a travesty to have infinite knowledge, but not to know how to use it. Correct? But God has infinite wisdom. Not only does he know, but he knows what to do with what he knows. With perfection. He has infinite knowledge. And he knows how to use that knowledge to the best end, namely for his glory. God uses his wisdom and his knowledge that he might get all the glory for all things from beginning to the summing up of all things. That he might get the glory. It's a demonstration of God's wisdom that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not a result of human striving. That's wisdom. That's God's wisdom. That it has nothing to do with us. We stand not on the basis of our own merit, but if salvation is to be granted to us, it's granted on the basis of another. That's God's wisdom and his knowledge that he would devise a plan that would hang his son on the cross for wretched, poor, weak, and dead sinners. If we could work for and earn our own salvation, then we would get the glory. But grace in itself is a demonstration of God's wisdom for the glory of God. From creation to consummation, God's redemptive plan is infinitely wise, which we can't forget that every text falls within a context, right? So we're not just pulling Romans 11, 33 through 36 out of its context, although I gave you super brief context, we have to remember that this text that we're looking at falls within the context of Paul praising God for his redemptive plan. There's a reason that Paul is uttering the words he's uttering here in Romans 11, 33 through 36. Because he's baffled, he's awestruck, he's dumbstruck, he's leveled, he's humbled, but at the same time encouraged at God's redemptive plan in the person and work of Jesus Christ for sinners like you and like me. You see the wisdom of God? It's ultimately Jesus Christ himself. Let me rewind that sentence for you. The wisdom of God is ultimately the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. Let me show it to you. Keep your finger there in Romans chapter 11. If you've got your Bible, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 and concluding in verse 24. The wisdom of God is ultimately Jesus Christ himself, crucified, risen, and reigning. Listen to what Paul says, beginning in verse 18. For the word or the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? There's a rhetorical question again, by the way. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, comma, here it is, Christ, the power of God and the what? The wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. In God's wisdom, He sent His Son for us. God knows everything. Third thing I want to draw your attention to is this. God makes plans that we cannot understand. God makes plans that we cannot fully understand. Look at this phrase in verse 33. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. God makes plans that we cannot understand. Look first at that phrase, how unsearchable are his judgments. God's judgments have to do with his decisions, his plans and his purposes. Remember that Paul has God's redemptive plan in view here. Specifically, in the context, let me add a little more color to the context of the text in front of you here. Specifically, God temporarily hardening the heart of Israel so that the Gentiles, whom most of us probably are, we're not national ethnic Jews, most of us, Gentiles. So God hardens the hearts temporarily of Israel that the Gentiles might hear and respond to the gospel. Praise God for that. And then he would use the salvation of the Gentiles to incite jealousy in the hearts of Israel that they might turn to Christ and receive him as their Messiah. What a plan. What a plan. What wisdom. What wisdom and what knowledge. God not only knows, but he knows what to do with what he knows. And this is his plan. This is his redemptive plan. Which, if you know him, you are a part of. His redemptive plan. What a marvelous demonstration of God's wisdom. Matthew Henry says this, speaking about how unsearchable God's judgments are. He says the apostle, that's Paul here, speaks of God's unsearchable judgments, especially with reference to the casting off off temporarily of the Jews and entertaining the Gentiles with a purpose of once again taking in the Jews in due time. These were strange proceedings, and they were. The choosing of some, the refusing of others, and neither according to the probabilities of human conjecture. Let me rephrase that. And neither according to the will of man. God's wisdom, God's knowledge. He's not asking our counsel. He's not asking our advice. He knows what he's doing in his redemptive plan. These are methods that are unsearchable, concerning which we must say, oh, the depth. Oh, the depth. Job reminds us in Job chapter 5, he says, God does great things and unsearchable things, marvelous things without number. Secondly, Paul says how inscrutable or how untraceable are his ways. You see, God's ways have to do with his dealings, how his judgments work out. God's ways are how his judgments work out. 
And God tells us some things about his ways in Scripture, does he not? He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my ways are higher than your ways. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. How inscrutable or how untraceable are his ways. I like the way the NIV translates this particular little phrase here. If you've got an NIV Bible sitting on your lap, it says this, his paths are beyond tracing out. If you have the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Version, it's how inscrutable or how untraceable are his ways. The NIV says his paths beyond tracing out. And it's interesting because the original Greek word here is, is translated in English, untraceable untraceable. It's a word that comes to us from a hunting metaphor where the hunter tracks an animal in in pursuit of an animal, but somewhere along the way he loses the tracks of the animal and can no longer discern where that animal has gone. You see, if we created beings try to pry into the untraceable mind of God, it won't be long before we lose his tracks. Untraceable. There are many things that we can know about God, namely what he has revealed to us in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, and what he has revealed in his divine written revelation, his word. But there are secret things that belong to the Lord, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our children. And If we try to pry into the untraceable mind of God, it won't be long before we lose his tracks. Infinite wisdom, infinite knowledge. The psalmist writes it this way in Psalm 77. He says, your way was through the sea. That's you, God. Your way was through the sea, as in the ocean. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Let me ask you a question to help you understand that verse. You ever tried to follow footprints in the sea? You can follow footprints temporarily on the sand, but even they go away quickly. But ever tried to follow a footprint in the sea? It's like when you step in the bathtub, right? When you step in and the footprint is immediately gone. It's immediately gone. The psalmist says trying to figure out the unfathomable ways of God is like trying to follow footprints in the sea. It's impossible. And so we're left just to trust in his wisdom and his knowledge. Number four on your outline, let me give you three things that no man can do. Three things that no man can do. This comes from verses 34 and 35. Paul writes, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Okay, three things from those two verses that no man can do. A, on your outline there is, no man can comprehensively understand the mind of God. We've been saying that. Let me just say it again. No man can comprehensively understand the mind of God. Can we know him? Absolutely. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Can we know him comprehensively? Absolutely not. And to do so is to try to follow footprints in the ocean. Untraceable. But Paul asks this question. He says, who's known the mind of the Lord? Any takers? Any takers on that one? It's a rhetorical question. And again, the answer is emphatically implied. No one has known the mind of the Lord comprehensively. No creature can plumb the depths of God's mind. No creature can discern the thoughts of God. There's only one person who can search the mind of God, and that's the Holy Spirit, right? Familiar text to probably most, if not all of us, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
Paul says this, he says, The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. You see, God knows the mind of all of His creatures perfectly, intimately acquainted with all your thoughts, even if they never come out in expressible words. He knows your thoughts. But no creature knows the thoughts comprehensively of our infinite God, save what He has revealed in His Word. And we're even dependent upon the Holy Spirit to understand that. The very Bible that sits on your lap, we are so dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit to even understand that and apply that and to do that, to live that out, to do what it says to do and be what it says to be and say what it says to say and think what it says to think and act the way it says to act and parent the way it says to parent and husband the way it says to husband and wife the way it says to wife and friend the way it says to friend and church member the way it says to church member and employee the way it says to employee. I mean, we're, we're completely dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit to even do those things, to even live out the precepts and the commands that God has prescribed in His Word. Be on your outline is no one can give counsel to God. No man can give counsel to God. Paul asked the question, who has been his counselor? Any takers? Who has been his counselor? Who stands at God's side giving him advice? To whom does God consult? Who does he exchange ideas with? The wisest man couldn't offer God a word of counsel or wisdom. Paul's actually quoting here in verse 34. He's actually quoting Isaiah chapter 40. Real familiar language here. Uh, The prophet Isaiah said it this way, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Again, there's no answer to that question in Isaiah 40. Why? Because the answer is emphatically implied. No one. No one did. He needs no counsel. Let me, let me bring some application to this particular point for you here. Sometimes we think God needs our help. Do we not? Sometimes we think God needs our wisdom and our counsel. Do we not? Every time that we grumble, argue, or complain, just three categories, okay? Every time that we argue, grumble, or complain, what we are effectively saying is, God, you obviously haven't gotten that right. Can I offer you a little help? You obviously need a little bit of advice. Let me counsel you a little bit here. I would have done that differently. Every time we argue, grumble, or complain, that is effectively what we're saying, or functionally what we're saying. Now, most of us, because we have a theological framework in our hearts and minds that is there because of our knowledge and understanding and application of God's Word, we wouldn't say those things. We wouldn't come right out and and verbalize it that way. But when we argue, grumble, and complain, that is what we are functionally saying. God, you've done it wrong. Let me help you. You obviously need some counsel. God needs no counsel. See on your outline there, and the third thing that no man can do, and that's that no man can put God in a position of debt. Paul asks, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? In other words, to whom is God obligated? Who holds God under their thumb? 
Who can demand that God owes him something? You see, one of the most humbling truths on the face of the planet is that God owes us nothing, but yet offers us everything. One of the most humbling truths in this created world is that God owes us nothing, but in the person and work of his son, hung on Calvary's cross, he's given us everything. A, on your outline there, God doesn't owe anyone anything. Job 41, God says this, he says, Who is first given to me that I should repay him? Whoever is under the whole of heaven is mine. We owe God an unpayable debt. Be there on your outline. Though God doesn't owe us anything, God in his mercy gives man what he doesn't deserve. God in his mercy gives man what he doesn't deserve. Got more notes there, but for the sake of time, let's, let's bring it to a close here this morning. Let me give you a few appropriate responses here as a result of a particular text that's in front of us. Number five on your outline there, it says the only appropriate response is to give God glory. That's verse 36. Paul writes, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. A on your outline, I want you to notice this. God is the source of all things. For from him, Paul writes. This answers the where question. Where does everything find its origin? Well, everything finds its origin in God. From him. He's the author of all things, save sin. From where do all things in heaven and on earth find their origin? They find their origin in him. God is the source of all things, from him. B, God is the sustainer of all things, and through him. This answers the how question. If for from him answers the where question, then through him answers the how question. How does God do all that he does? Well, he does all that he does from within himself. He needs no help. He needs no external power. He is the sustainer of all things. Matter of fact, there's a text in your Old Testament Bible there that says if God were to remove his spirit from us, we would return to dust. He's the sustainer of all things. Here's maybe a more familiar text to most of us. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 Paul says this, he says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things, what? Hold together. All things hold together. If God were to remove his common restraining grace from this spinning ball on which we, re on which we reside, it would absolutely go into chaos. It would spin into chaos. God is the sustainer of all things. He holds all things together, and he needs no help. Praise him, all you peoples. See, God is the goal of all things. Paul says, and to him are all things. This answers the why question. We've answered the where question. He's the source of all things. The how question he does all he does by himself. What's the why question? What's the goal of all things? Why does God do all that he does? 
And Paul answers that question in the very last phrase of our text this morning when he says, to him be the glory forever. Amen. God does everything he does. Everything, capital E-V-E-R. Why? T-H-I-N-G, everything he does is for his glory. David declared in Psalm chapter 19, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. But let me tell you this, brother and sister, more than those planetary entities, you were made to praise God. You were made to praise him and to glorify him forever. We want to glorify God by thinking rightly of him, by thinking lofty thoughts of him, by thinking highly of him. We want to glorify God by being submissive to him. We want to glorify God by being an image bearer, one that represents Jesus Christ. Paul said, so whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. David said it this way in Psalm 29. He said, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Hey, here's a picture of eternity right there, by the way. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. That right there is the task of eternity. So here's my encouragement to you. Be practicing now what you'll do for all eternity. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. That's the employment of eternity. So let's be practicing now what we'll do for all days without end. God is the only person that is worthy of your praise. John said it this way in Revelation 4. We said this this morning already, but worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Brothers and sisters, even your salvation is not primarily about you. We are merely the beneficiaries of an all-sufficient benefactor. Even your salvation, even all the rich mercy that has been lavished upon you, that you should be called a child of God, it's not primarily about you or me. It's primarily about Him. We're just the, the great beneficiaries of all of His great work in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we turn to Him and we say, all glory be to you forever and ever. When we contemplate the nature and character of God, the only proper response is worshipful adoration. You see, theology, we study our Bibles, and we learn more truth about who God is. That's theology. We ought to have hooks in our mind with which we hang those truths on. So as I sit down tomorrow morning and I open my Bible and I have a quiet time, I ought to be thinking, what are truths here that I can hang on the hooks of my heart and mind? That's theology. It's the foundation of all we do, say, think, the way we act, who we are, the way we respond. Theology. But theology ought never be separated from right, worshipful doxology. As a matter of fact, doxology that is not informed by theology is empty praise and man-centered at best. We have to have deep theology. Oh, the depth of the riches, of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable 
or his judgments and has passed beyond tracing out? Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and to him and through him are all things to him and him alone, might we add, be the glory forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word resizes us. It puts us into our proper context. God, we want to always be growing in a high and lofty view of you, and as we do, it, it helps us to understand, one, how in need of your Son we are, because when we grow in a high view of you, it illuminates our sin, it illuminates our fallenness, it illuminates our need, our desperate need for you, and so we thank you for that. God, thank you that you have met our greatest need in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We're not left hopeless, we're not left helpless. God, you have stepped into our world the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Help us to love you more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.